The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. All are welcome. We're glad you found us. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Are you ready to create a life that's intentional and dynamic? Welcome to the Intentional Spirit with your host, Reverend Temple Hayes. for tuning in and being with us. We're so delighted that you're here. I, I just love the whole concept and conversation about being an intentional spirit. Um, an intentional spirit doesn't go by outside circumstances, events, things that are occurring. It's more than goal setting. It's, it's, it's deeper than um, just a, a simple list of things that you're going to do or achieve. It's about uh, the determination to continue to take a step forward uh, towards whatever it is. I, I love the statement that Buddha says, the one way to finish a product or the one thing that gets in the way of completing a project is never starting or never finishing. And so as intentional spirits, we start and we move forward. We don't wait to the someday because it's not a day of the week. Some day doesn't exist. We just keep moving forward right now. Speaking of moving forward and trailblazing, I'm delighted that on our show today, we have Jane Galloway and her new book, The Gateways, The Wisdom of 12-Step Spirituality Dynamic Practices that Work. So boy, do we love that. Welcome, Jane. Thank you for being here. So grateful Hi, that you're here you. today to and tuning in with you. us. Great to be with you. Absolutely. So um, how did a nice girl like you wind up in a place like this? <laughs> tell, tell our listeners, um, you know, even though we, we post your information and things like that from your heart, um, tell us how did you get um, started in, in recovery? I, I love your website, by the way, and the beautiful red oh, bridge you. and that, you know, we're all ways recovering from something. Uh, tell us about your path. We're, we're all recovering from something is, is really what I, uh, the, the website says, and I, I think we are. We're all recovering from something. And um, my, uh, well, let me see, my past, um, I grew up with a father who was in AA with a very uh, challenging um, early childhood between my two parents who were probably, uh, you know, ill-suited to be life partners, but they created me, so or God created me through them. So, um, uh, and I, uh, you know, I, I, I had a lot of early childhood trauma. Um, and, and I love the work of Gabor Mate, who talks about he really feels the cause of addiction is early childhood, and that by healing the wounds of early childhood, we manage to get to, uh, you know, to, to causal situations. So anyway, I mean, I had, um, I had a very interesting and creative and also trauma, uh, laced early, early, uh, life. And, um, 
you know, I, I don't really think that much about my drinking anymore from a perspective of the AA narrative. I mean, I, I have been sober many, many years, and uh, many more years than I haven't been. And um, I, uh, I really started using substances to continue to be part of life. I had mega anxiety, a lot of gifts and talents. I was an actress, a professional actress for many years. I starred on Broadway, starred in my own pilot for CBS at the Ed Sullivan Theater and have worked all over the world. But but perform, I had performing um, anxiety and I had anxiety about just being alive. <laughs> so um, I discovered... Um, creatively, I think, discovered um, alcohol. It's interesting. I started, the first thing I started taking, I think, was um, sugar. That was a mood changer as a kid. But then uh, my mother was taking diet pills, and I discovered them. And, you know, actresses always need to be, you know, skinnier than skinny. So I, but I took one. Um, and I loved the way it made me feel. So I used to steal them from her. So that was really my first drug of choice. But um, it was kind of tough to get them. You had to go to a doctor and kind of figure out all these things. And I began drinking um, probably in earnest um, after my father died suddenly of a heart attack. But my father planted seeds in me of all of these amazing self-help tools and all of the stuff he was getting in AA. He was very uh, active in the program and very charismatic speaker, introduced me to, you know, psycho-cybernetics at age 10 and all of these things. So when he died when I was 16, I had that great beginning. Um, but I also didn't have the emotional infrastructure to handle the numerous losses, plus to, to, to be in the world I wanted to be part of. So alcohol was a great... Um, it was a great strategy. It was. I think. I think alcohol, if you use it correctly, can be seen as a great resilience for people who are dealing with self-medication. But we live in a society that's blasting us with pharmaceutical ads every five seconds. So it's just it's self-medication, but it's a way to calm down certain uh, neural pathways and anxiety, so you can be part of life. Unfortunately, uh, it, you know, we develop tolerance. And it kind of turns on us. <laughs> and it's very ungroovy to be a woman uh, alcoholic, you know. No matter how you dress it up, it just is really, you know, not great. So, um, yeah, so so I, uh, I found myself... Um, when I hit the proverbial bottom, which is described by so many as rock bottom, and I don't experience it that way, but I will say that when I experienced that bottom, it really was a light changing experience uh, you know my room I put my in my apartment in New York was filled with a bright light and um, I heard the words it's over it's the drinking so and the next day I got sober and you could never have told me and my father you know had been sober but I, it never occurred to me that that was going to be my issue however the moment before that and I think this thing about a bottom is really worth looking at because 
I I have really experienced my bottom. I mean, it was an awful moment. It was an awful moment before that light happened. I, I really describe it and experienced it as an existential void. I have never felt so alone in the universe as I did then. And I saw this circle of isolation I had managed to create around me, and, and I had just managed to push the last person out of that circle, um, a friend who had just left uh, my apartment. And I... I Oh, my God. I mean, it was free-falling into blech, awfulness. And, and, but then very quickly after that, this, I had this uh, experience of the bright light. And, you know, I, um, I had been to some meetings six months earlier, so I did have a meeting book stashed away in a drawer, <laughs> which I, you know, pretended to myself. It's so funny how we fake ourselves out. You know, I had pretended to myself that none of that had ever happened, that I had never gone to the meeting and I'd anyway, but I knew exactly where to go um, to find the meeting book, and I went to my first meeting the next day. But I described that bottom as a trampoline because, honestly, it immediately um, it, it immediately catapulted me into a whole other uh, reality and, and um, really another dimension. The first time I said, which was two days later, the first time I said in front of a group of people, um, at an AA meeting in New York City called the Mustard Seed. I, it was so strange because, the, you know, I sat there drinking in the meeting. And toward the end, the man who was leading it said, young lady, would you like to share something? And, you know, this grandiosity thing is so funny. I thought, oh, oh, he probably thinks I'm doing a story for the New York Times. I mean, what on earth? Anyway, so I, I went up to the front of the room, though, and um, I said, my name's Jane, and I'm an alcoholic. And in that moment, I had the experience of my entire life flashing before my eyes. So I know that when people go through this, um, at, at the end of one life and the entry into another, it's very real. Every single, I, I can't believe it, but it's true. I mean, every single everything of my whole life flashed before my eyes, and it was really in the moment, in the... Uh, you know, space of probably, you know, 60 seconds or 30 seconds. And, and I felt after that experience that um, I really had the same name, same social security number, et cetera, but that I had basically uh, reincarnated into another level of being. So for me, from the very, very beginning, it was a metaphysical experience. Um, now, I mean, I had withdrawal and a ton of pain and agony in terms of working through all of the stuff I had to work through uh, for the first 90 days, year, five years. You know, there, there are kind of milestones uh, typically in people's lives, although I think they're different for everyone. Um, so it's not to say that I just kind of like hopped onto the spiritual bandwagon instantly, but that was the path I was on. I had been very mad at God uh, for many reasons. Uh, I grew up in the church and blah, blah. That's a whole other story. But from the moment I got, I had this blinding light and then um, that life-changing, uh, life passing before my eyes thing, I was insatiable. I was reading everything. I was looking for the books. My father had given me a lot of books by Emmett Fox, especially Power Through Constructive Thinking. And then a friend from the Mustard Seed told me about Eric Butterworth. Um, and so I began to attend Eric Butterworth on Sundays. So right away, 
um, this was a spiritual transformation for me. So, you know, there are a lot of different thoughts about the origins of addiction, and people really, um, we, we have great science now, um, et cetera, et cetera. But my particular story um, has had to do with, uh, that has had to do with having a transformative experience, a body-mind-spirit experience. And I have somatized a lot of stuff over the years. And really the reason I wrote the book is that I ended up, you know, switching careers uh, later, much later, and going into ministry. And and the path that I really teach is, is new thought, but it's also um, – you know, I have a doctorate in religion and, and learned about the Nag Hammadi scrolls and the amazing Jesus path. And then I, I had been collecting a lot of self-help, to, well, utilizing them. The chakras, Eric Erickson's Eight Ages of Man, Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs, the Kabbalah, Seferat, all of these things are developed. Jacob's Ladder, you know, is in the Bible. All of these developmental tools, and I, I realized, wait a minute, there's some link up. They're all developmental. They're all like a ladder. They're all like a scaffold. That is, the, you root yourself, you know, that root chakra or step one, et cetera, um, and, and you root yourself and then go up the up the body, if you will. Um, and, and also Chinese meridian system really uh, fits in with all of this, too. So I've, I have, I've seen the growth path, Yogananda, as, as pretty uh, similar in many different cultures but described differently. And I really see the 12 steps as another wisdom path. Now, it's also a developmental path, a psycho-spiritual path. It's a lot of other things. Um, but, but my particular interest became, after a lot of years in recovery, that spiritual, metaphysical, really wisdom path and the similarity between the wisdom path of the, the you know, the creators of this, that program are just immediately they say, you know, um, the path to spirit is broad, roomy, all-inclusive. I mean, they were visionary. They were open for the vision to come through them. Sure. Uh, that's well, not how the culture minute, of that program um, has gone in a lot of ways. So I've been trying, try, somebody, one of my members in a community in New York, when I was in New York City, said, you know, we want to know what works for you. And I said, oh, well, that's easy. It's the 12 steps plus all these other psycho-spiritual tools. And she said, write that. We need that. So that's why I wrote the book. Love it. I absolutely love it. And I just want to take a minute and welcome um, a lot of our also online viewers on on Facebook, we're we're tuning in to about 220,000 people, and I I wanted wow. to welcome people from Bangladesh. I wanted to welcome um, people here in the states. I wanted to welcome our friend from Norway. So we we love the fact that you join us and and that you tune in. Really appreciate it. Encourage your comments, or if you have any questions for Jane. That's what I do often is I sit and watch some of the comments coming through on my phone because I love the engagement and I love the interactiveness that, you know, we can support each other on the journey. I was somewhat laughing, Jane. Uh, for those of you, you can go to janegalloway.com and access her website as well as uh, read her blog, uh, order the book and, and know more about, you know, what she's into. 
but I was I was laughing um, when you said you know that you started your life growing up on on sugar you know and I I thought about that and I've I've told this story before to our listeners that you know my dad would make me breakfast every morning it was white bread uh, laced in white sugar with butter. <laughs> mm, sounds good. And, and then I would go to school. You know, oh off the ceiling, yeah. off the chart, uh, hyper, and, uh, you know, my conduct grade tanked because I couldn't sit yeah. still and I couldn't be still. But all the years that I that I drank uh, tons of wine, you know, tons of alcohol, absorbing all that sugar, it was so yeah. funny because, you know, we just didn't know back then. Actually, no. it surprises me that people don't know now. But um, people would say to me, oh, would you like a piece of cake or would you like a cookie? And I'd go, oh, no, I, I'm not really into sweets. <laughs> I'll just have a quart of scotch. <laughs> well, I'm sitting here drinking my whole bottle of wine by myself yeah. and I'm slurring and I can't hardly talk and I'm slobbering on myself. No, right. I don't really care for anything sweet. But I tell right. you, boy, once I once I stopped drinking... And it, it's so cool because I love how like attracts like, you know, that um, a very similar kind of thing. I'm not trying to be like you, to identify with you, but okay, I you literally like in the middle of the night had a huge, like the, the room shook. And yeah, wow. I got this cool. real strong message that if you ever drink again, you're going to die. And it was so strong. And um and I just never went down the same aisle in the grocery store again. And it was maybe a year later that I thought, oh, my gosh, I, I believe I did have a problem <laughs> with alcohol. Like, wow. you know, I, so it took you a year to, to kind of assimilate all of that and decide to. So I never looked back. And that was yeah, uh, okay. you know, okay, cool. three years ago. I just never looked back. And I didn't do the um, the meetings, but what I did is I immersed myself in spirituality. You know, yeah. so I was either in a group thing or therapy or, you know, whatever. And I, I think sometimes that's a big missing is that um, people might stop something. They might quit something, but they don't uh, tend to do the inner work and continue to invest in changing the vibration in their, in their lives. And that's so important. Right. So important. Right. I think, see, my experience, my dad was part of AA at a time when it was like, really, I mean, you know, he met the founders or Lisa Bill Wilson. And I mean, he, you know, it was a very, um, these guys, and it was mostly guys, uh, men, you know, um, we're just grateful to get back on the horse and be able to be part of life. They weren't looking at, you know, 30, 40, 50, whatever years of dynamic living beyond the moment of getting sober. And so that program really is designed to get sober and to set up a fantastic template for living. It's a, for living. It's a wonderful holistic template for inner work, for inner examination, for kind of peer uh, support, you know, working with another person uh, to help you kind of get to your deeper uh, stuff. And then 
10, in a daily way, 10, 11, 12, are really about continue to look inside, uh, make amends when appropriate, it quickly rather than wait a thousand years. The 11th step is all about spirituality and developing, um, you know, a deeper listening ear to hear the exact nature of God's will for us or Spirit's will for us. Um, and then the 12th step is sharing that message. So the, the last three are really a wonderful holistic way for living what I see as the Jesus path or the whatever it is. It's an, I, all of these words are so charged up <laughs> because, um, you know, because the culture has created, you know, uh, forms, Christianity and, and uh, et cetera, et cetera, around um, the teachings of someone who really is teaching a holistic path, Jesus. And when I, uh, so, so I hesitate to use even that word. But I do write a path on the 12 steps and uh, new thought. And there's another chapter on the 12 steps and the Jesus path. And um, really just looking at, wow, I mean, this is a very expansive way of living. My concern is that people don't move on. Uh, you know, uh, there's there's a phrase that's colloquial. I've looked for it in the actual literature of that program, but um, and it's I can't find it. But but it's very widely said that this is a bridge back to life. But my experience has been that a lot of people camp out on the bridge forever. <laughs> they don't get because you don't go back to life. You don't go back to a place. I mean. You can't go backward. We can't go backward, really. So, so the thing is, we get into life, but what life? What life is that? And then to create a uh, a world uh, for ourselves uh, where that level of continual growth is um, ever present is a challenge, and that's certainly not you know the way to do that is not present in, in that in that program. The steps are amazing. Um, and so I'm really – I love Yogananda, who I studied for many years. Um, you know, Paramahansa Yogananda said as a phrase, it says, pick a path, any path, and go deeper. Or, you know, you can look at the work of Matthew Fox, who wrote One River, Many Wells. I mean, truth is truth is truth. Wisdom is wisdom is wisdom. So the deeper you go – even the path of the arts. I mean, if you really become a devoted um, artist, actor, writer, poet, etc., and discipline yourself to continue going deeper, 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 you move through those developmental levels, and we ultimately get to the same place, which is that river of spirit. Um, so I have begun talking about or trying to encourage people to look at the idea of next stage recovery. And that's where I think this really fits with anything we do. I mean, we go through all kinds of things. We lose jobs. We lose our way. We have a relationship that didn't go exactly as we had hoped it would or something. And People tend to, um, you know, some people really do the work and are able to say, okay, do I want to be that person who was in that situation? But, but often that's not the case. Often there are people who get stuck. And, and I think, really, I created this model, and there are many models. I mean, God knows, I don't think I have the lock on anything. I'm just trying to open a door for people to look at the holistic nature of utilizing um, the steps and the other psycho-spiritual tools that are in my book that to to continue moving, keep moving, you know. <laughs> 
Um, so really, and to open doors of inner, you know, the inner potential, uh, to free the possible human to embrace a life of wellness beyond addiction, this whole thing. I mean, I really... I, I really have. I think you and I started talking around this, uh, an idea of, you know, uh, possibly, uh, you know, doing a compendium of of stories about people getting sober. And I'm really more interested in the ever evolving path. I think um, I think there's just so to focus on on the. I don't know how people get sober. I know that if people look at the trauma in their lives and if people look at a broader metaphysical uh, way of continually evolving on the path of spirit, um, it's unlikely they will will need uh, addictive substances. That's what I think. That's what I hope. Yeah, that, so, I agree anyway. with you, and I, I think that these practices that's in your book, The Gateways, I think the wisdom of the 12 steps, you know, they've had 12 steps, we've had seven steps of masterminding. I think the, the deeper and the greater point is is really that these steps can apply to anything, you know, how to Absolutely. integrate more, how to dig deeper, how to allow yourself to unfold, um, how to be present in the moment, how to manage, as you said, when you first started talking, how to manage the anxiety, you know, which tends to be that we're often focusing on the future or the depression that we're often thinking about the past or, and it's not a one size fits all, but I wanted to share with you that, um, and I want to give out a a shout out to this woman. You're going to love this. Her name is Diane and she used to work at a 12 step rehab in Connecticut. That was originally a new thought retreat for teachers who were students of Emma Curtis Hopkins, Bill Wilson and Marty Mann, right? And that's where there was a connection that was made. But she she went there. Bill Wilson, Marty Mann went there, and a connection was made. And um, and I think there's a lot of history in that. Diane, I'm glad you brought that up, and thank you for making that point because people do forget that that Bill Wilson was very engaged and new thought. Um, and actually, you know, I, I understood, discuss the 12 steps with, with Ernest Holmes. So it, it does have, you know, such a, such a deep connection. I want to invite That's all his of you thing to with Emmett Fox. You know, it's us. funny because I talk about it in the book. Uh, his secretary uh, was, told him about Emmett Fox, who was speaking on Sundays at Carnegie Hall in New York, and uh, her son was attending. And so he discovered the, um, the Sermon on the Mount uh, teaching of Emmett Fox through his secretary's son. I mean, it's funny how these things happen, but that's how um, Bill Wilson got turned on to that. I don't know if he talked to uh, Ernest Holmes, but I do know that his initial connection with Ernest You're listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world.
Welcome back to The Intentional Spirit with Rev. Temple Hayes. You can go to janegalloway.com and you can um, purchase the book and learn more about it, you know, from there. I, I love the fact that you talk about some of the history. Could you delve into that a little bit um, with us? It sounds very exciting. Well, the, the history I was talking about with World War II and all that. Yeah, I think that's so yeah. cool. Well, I mean, I think what happened, you know, um, it, it, you know, it, when you look at things in a cultural context, you start thinking, oh, my God, no wonder. I mean, so all of these young men went off to fight in World War II, or many, 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 and it was a very unified war effort. Um, and so when, uh, you know, and women filled in um, many roles. I mean, we know about defense plans, but it was much more widespread than that. I mean, women had to hold the culture together, essentially, and, um, and the economy, and were working and were independent, and et cetera. And so looking at this through the lens of women's studies has been so interesting because there was a whole big PR thing that um, began trying to talk about, you know, here are women, first of all, women working in the defense plant, wearing coveralls, and then, whoops, we need you back in the house because we have to get jobs for men. So suddenly, that's when the Dior look came in. Do you remember that with the tiny, teeny waist that no human oh, woman yeah. has? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. all of that, th that was a huge PR campaign in magazines, the Saturday Evening Post and Life magazine, all these things. It, talking about, you know, mother, you know, how you're going to love to, I don't know, I've, I've written some pieces of my mother going crazy with contact paper. You know, my mother was a brilliant woman and taught and was a singer, a concert, you know, sang in front of symphony orchestras as a soloist, etc. But everybody fell into this thing of, you know, I have to have children and the be in this white picket fence reality, and um, a lot of women suddenly were taken out of a volitional space where their narrative had to do with their own creativity, their own volition, and put into this world that was created where the man would go out and have a job, that job they might have had before, perchance, and then the woman is stuck with this, you know, avocado-colored refrigerator, and, uh, you know, I mean, if you look at some of these old ads, I mean, I vaguely remember them. Um, but but it was really creating this whole image. And this is when the use of Mother's Little Helpers, I'm sure you've heard of those, right? So right. Mother's Little Helpers came in, and Mother's Little Helpers were Valium, were benzodiazepines, <laughs> or amphetamine, or whatever got this woman through the day who suddenly was saying, okay, I'm supposed to be finding my happiness by cleaning this house and having a refrigerator that's, you know, avocado colored and blah, blah, blah. Um, but it, it really was a switch. So a lot of these kids of the 50s who were raised in that time, and, and that included me, um, were raised in families where there was huge social unrest going on that wasn't really discussed. I mean, um, and, and a lot of addictive family models were getting set up, um, and people were so, – so I found it really interesting that then in the early 70s or mid-70s, all of those 
people who had grown up during that time went flooding into recovery um, because not only was that model set up to keep women, you know, to this isolated single-family thing, but it, it cut down, it disenfranchised the whole idea of the extended family. So you were supposed to be in this little house, just you, the nuclear family. No culture that has really sustained itself over history has just utilized this idea of a nuclear family, one mother, one father, one, one or two or four, or whatever, children, it's very isolating. We need community. We need help. And, of course, that model also doesn't include, you know, I mean, it was very heterosexist and very, um, you know, it just was a very narrow model. And um, so a lot of people were suffering. A lot of women were suffering, but men were too because they were shoved into this role, came back from the war and went into the workplace, and this is where three martini lunches started coming in. People were medicating themselves. They had just gone through a huge, I mean, really, people talk about a lot of the challenges we're going through now as a culture. Listen, my grandparents and mother lived through the Depression. People have gone through tremendous challenges in this culture and and survived in whatever way they could, and many have thrived. But um, so the history of, of this this real addictive uh, process, and it, it really, I think, goes back to, well, I mean, it's as old as, you know, the Bible. It goes back before that. So, But in this American model, uh, looking at that post-World War II scenario, and that's where so much of this sugar came in and plastic and, uh, you know, um, TV dinners and uh, cheese crafts cheeses that were all filled with fillers and stuff. Before that, people ate whole food. I mean, really, all of this stuff came in during that era, and many people became addicted to additives. Um, you know, it changed our whole system, our whole physical system. I remember I used to take vitamins as a kid. They were a liquid vitamin. I loved these things. They were called polyvisol. And I finally, I saw them at a pharmacy not long ago, and I thought, what is the deal with these things? Why was I so hooked on them? Well, they were loaded with sugar. So I was taking, like you were taking sugar and bread or whatever in the morning, I was taking a little dropper full of sugar, you know, zap. Um, so I think uh, the history of all that and the history of the isolation and then people trying to find their way back to a cultural model that works. I'm, you know, I'm essentially a sociologist by, by the way I look. I look at the macro and the cultural view of things. That's what has always interested me. So the isolation factor and a lot of, you know, the confusion about what is a family? What is the world look like a very traditional patriarchal model and all of that stuff is falling apart now so anyway so that's the history there and then as you mentioned marty mann i mean the original or one of the callers mentioned marty i you know this idea of uh women actually having something to do with in a public way or semi-public i mean you know there's the anonymity element of it and certainly that was much more important in that era because there was so much stigma about um about addiction because people didn't understand it but many many women still were hiding um it wasn't really uh okay for women to i mean women would have their little sweet cocktails or whatever they'd have and their pills to, to get through the day um 
but this, we we raised a whole generation of people who were raised in an addictive family system. So that's a lot of the history I get into. That's so powerful, and it, it makes perfect sense how it's all been part of our our past process, you know. Yeah. And um, yeah, I know one of I the biggest awakenings. A country people. spirals into addiction. And, uh, you know, how did this happen, et cetera, et cetera. I think it's just a pretty interesting, yeah, it does, it makes a lot of sense. So now, I mean, part of the thing about a, creating a culture where people connect more, the, the Internet is such a wonderful thing because it's really kind of like it's a physical manifestation of the quantum field. We're connecting with people. We said someone's on here from Bangladesh. I, on my uh, web platforms, talk to people all over the world. Um, it's a powerful way people are connecting. So it's not just a physical kind of connection. It may not be a geographical connection primarily that works for us, but you and I are connecting right now and et cetera. I mean, these are dynamic uh, ways of combating that spiritual hunger. I love the book that Gabor Mate wrote, In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts. It's a very powerful title, isn't it? Hungry Ghosts. Um, and he talks about really going deeper into the childhood and, and healing. You know, that healing is absolutely possible um, from all of this stuff, but we have to look at it. We have to be able to see it. Um, and I think that, you know, obviously people walking this path of recovery um, and understanding that recovery is an ever-evolving process every single day. You know, I'm recovering from a disappointment a few years ago. I'm really, I, I, I'm in a group, a reading group with some people, a poetry group, focusing on the stories of, on the writings of Rumi, and a poem came through me because it was suggested by the leader of the group. She said, I want you to be your own Rumi. And it was funny. I thought, I don't want to be my own Rumi. <laughs> but then suddenly something in me wanted me to be. And this poem came through me, and it was the catharsis. After, after therapy, after working on various things, it, it did it. It fixed it, that poem. So, I mean, I think we have to look at what are the tools that we utilize, that we access, that are tools for ever-evolving body, mind, spirit growth, because this is how we are, you know, Michael Beckwith talks about one of his great things that he says, you know, the pain pushes until the vision pulls, and and that's just so great because a lot of the focus of rehabs and various programs is on the pain. It's on the addiction. The addiction is just a tool. People get addicted because they, do, they don't want to feel something. And so if we can get to the core of what is it they don't want to feel and why and how to heal that place, then, you know, it's unnecessary to utilize a drug to fix it. Yeah, that's so true. So absolutely true. And, and it's just the, with, the, with the tools that you give in the book, um, and I love how you brought in all of the, the different modalities of healing. Um, it, that's, that really makes it powerful because, um, and I, to highlight the idea of what you were talking about earlier, because often people uh, stay safe in the same um, aquarium. You know, they go to the same yeah, meetings, so they go to right. the same location, they go to the same time. And it's that exposure 
of being uncomfortable or going to new situations or new circumstances, like you said, that we have these aha moments where if you stay in the same aquarium, you're safe there, but it often it can stunt your growth as well as accentuate it, really. Wow, I love that metaphor, staying in the same aquarium. Mm-hmm. And all kind of, that that brings forth all kinds of metaphors. I mean, you know, all kinds of stuff happens in aquariums. If you don't clean it properly or whatever, you got, we got to yeah, got to keep moving into the open ocean, the open ocean of spirit. Yeah, I I love to do that. You know, as a student, because I I think that you know it's a joy in your life to to be living in what you don't know and to be a student and. Um, I love to, you know, look at biographies and, and study different people in different eras and what people were able to accomplish. But if you just yeah, stay with the too. same four or five people and remind each other that you're okay all the time, it's a beautiful thing. There's nothing. I, I think what we're saying, it's both and. It, it's good to absolutely. have that connection absolutely. and that consistency. And you have to do, I mean, you know, there is, there's a downside. There, there's a lot of pain involved with um that can be involved with any healing process. Um, I had an orthopedic surgery a few years ago, and it has made me be completely, you know, great again. But before I went there for that surgery, I was in a lot of pain, and I was grouchy and and limited in my mobility. And then the recovery process was not a day at the beach, but when it was over, it was over, and I was better again. So, I mean, we it's not a denial of the process of... Of healing. I mean, I think, you know, yeah. You know, I, I, there's a great book. Speaking of biography, I just read a great book I would recommend to anybody to really read about somebody who has done amazing work through his whole life, Dapper Dan, made in Harlem. And he, he is now doing a, a, a collaboration with Gucci, but, man, he was arrested for his – he's the guy who really did the birth of logos, uh, wearing logos on the outside of stuff, and he did it as a creative expression. Um, you know, it's just a wonderful – it's a wonderful – I think it's a wonderful metaphysical book. It's as inspiring, if not more, than reading, you know, Power Through Constructive Thinking. This guy lived it acted it you know and so um i mean there are so many great books but i'm with you i love i love biographies um to see you know there was a i lived in new york city for many years and it's kind of where my creative roots were planted so i feel the tree of me is planted there too in many ways but um i read an article once in the new yorker and it said this man was saying you can see where people stopped if you sit on the subway and this is an old this is an article you know long time ago but he was saying if you look down the the train and you see a woman who was um dressed like a 1950s secretary or something he said wow it seems like you know People either keep evolving and keeping up with different trends and fashions and et cetera, or sometimes they stop at the time when their life was the best for them, and they just get stuck in that place. And I think one of the greatest things we can do for each other is be the person. Then I began to notice that. I started looking around, and it's like, where were you when the music stopped? You remember musical chairs, that awful game where everybody's scrambling to get in the chairs? Um, It's like that. Where were you when the music stopped? You're clinging onto that chair. Um, But I think one of the greatest gifts we can give one another is to to help people uh, over those stuck points. 
Oh, absolutely. Oh, good. There's a question from uh, one of our listeners. How do we, how do you best transfer these same self-care steps to specifically our spiritual healing, growth, and discernment? And that's our friend, Robert. Hey, Robert. You know, it's all spiritual growth and healing. And I think if you, certainly if you get my book, you will see, I, again, like I was describing before, I, I visualize this. I'm also a painter, so I visualize. I see things visually, but I really think it's kind of a ladder. So it, it, the book shows you ways to do this, to localize um, what are you working on. You know, what are you working on? And um, and then you can kind of pinpoint different tools for different layers. But I think all of life is a spiritual process. Yeah, I too. I found the 12 steps to be, you know, so crucial in so many ways, you know, taking your inventory, kind of seeing where you're at. You learn how to develop, you know, a multidimensional way of looking at life from many rich facets. And that's very powerful. Um, And to call forth something greater than you are. I mean, I find that very invigorating. I do too. And then, and the thing is, the thing that I love about this ladder, I know I keep going back to that, but the thing is, um, it gives you something to hold on to. I remember hearing Eric Butterworth, I think Eric Butterworth gave me an idea for this whole idea, and I realized after the book came out, I thought, wow, I should have mentioned this and thanked him. He said, and he was a very square guy, I mean, you know, I'm sure you know, but so he wasn't somebody you would expect to be talking about LSD, but he was on one Sunday, and this was a, to a packed Avery Fish. Hall, but he said, you know, all the the consciousness, the test and higher consciousness and stuff that were being done around the use of LSD. He said, the thing is, it's not that the insights you have at that peak level of insight um, aren't real. It's just that when you come down from the experience, you're looking back up there saying, how do I get back up here? And that's, he said, that's where prayer and meditation and different processes give us a stairway to get back up there. They're more reliable tools rather than ingesting something that gives us one peak experience, which is kind of what addictive things do too. But you can't get back there. Um, And so then, so I would say, you know, prayer, meditation, exercise, chanting, work, vibratory work, all kinds of stuff. And a lot of these things that I talk about really help you get back to fortify those levels of development. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And just new exposure. It, it's so powerful. You know, always check in and, and see who's in your boat. You know, see, ah, see who's... Oh, I love these metaphors you use. Who's in your boat or who's in your aquarium? so important because to keep just i i i've always said if you're if your mother stretched so you could be born we ought to think enough of ourselves to stretch as well you know mm, and to expand right because right? i i want my life to be as you have you know so much more than oh i stopped drinking and i'm you know i'm you know in sobriety i want it to be thriving you know how to continue yeah, to absolutely. thrive and be alive and and to to use these tools as an influencer, I mean that's that's really what it's all about. I'm totally with you on that. 
So um, are you, obviously you would have gone on a book tour. Um, and how's the, is the book doing well? Yeah, the book has done well. I, 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 it continues to be, it's, people are getting interested in it um, on different levels. I think initially it was a funny thing because I used um, the words 12-step spirituality, which made people think this was something about AA, and it's really not at all. It's really about uh, these different grids and tools that I have discovered in working the 12 steps. So in the beginning, you know, a lot of people, are, you know, people get very, uh, some people get very, very defensive about, you know, don't add something to my program. It's perfect the way it is. And so my, I think my audience is not primarily the, the audience of people in 12-step programs. However, there are people in 12-step programs who also have added the metaphysical angle of things and the body-mind-spirit angle of things and are in a more holistic mindset. And finally, the book's finding its audience. Um, for a while, <laughs> I did readings and book signings and tours and all these things, and people were, um, I was running into a lot of pushback, which I think, look, any new idea, this is a new idea. This is a new idea. It's, it's, it's a way of looking at something people think they know about, and it's kind of pushing back against some of the culture uh, that um, is part of the 12-step movement. So, you know, some people get defensive. I, I, I don't think it's a good thing for us to... Thank you for listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Do you ever feel that calling that you should be doing more with your life? If you're unhappy with the status quo, I can help. My name is Elias Patras, and I'm an intuitive motivator, psychic medium, and motivational speaker. I know that feeling, and on my podcast, Your Inner Voice, I can help you answer that call to step into your life's purpose. I will show you how to recognize and listen to the signs and signals that are all around us and help you tap into your intuition. Join me for the show here on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network and wherever you get your podcasts. Let's connect, educate, and grow on this journey together.